0: It's Thursday. It's 2 p.m. Eastern, and that means it's another Bold Leaders and Learning episode. I'm delighted to have you here. I know we're all on pins and needles following the presidential election, but hopefully this will be a fantastic way to distract yourself from refreshing browsers and following uh, Twitter updates. I'm delighted to have uh, somebody who I now call a friend I had a chance to meet uh, earlier this year, Fernando Snowden-Lorence, Lorense, is the vice president of global philanthropy at J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, he and I met initially because we had an opportunity to sit at an event called The Table, uh, where we talked about some of the challenges that veterans face in transitioning from military into civilian workforce. And uh, Fernando happens to be uh, a veteran uh, of the Marine Corps and a uh, big, big part of his background. We're going to talk a little bit about that because uh, that's an important subject that that's important to to both of us in terms of some of the work we've done. But Fernando, I want to take a step back. First of all, say thanks for joining. Uh, would love to just have you describe a little bit about your own personal background, right? Um, and and then from there, uh, a little bit about the, the the rather extensive work that you're doing in your role as as Vice President of Global Philanthropy. So uh, so. Please tell us a little bit more about you and, uh, and the work that you're into right now.
1: Brandon, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with, uh, with you. And you know, <clears throat> my journey starts in uh, Brooklyn, in East New York. Uh, that's where I'm from. And I think it's actually informed uh, a lot of my later career choices uh, quite a bit. Um, I didn't realize until after I had the opportunity to actually join the, uh, the military, join the, the Marine Corps. I have a couple of service members in my family. In fact, both of the men I knew growing up uh, were Vietnam veterans. And I think that had a significant impact on what I thought was possible and the direction I thought I was supposed to be going. And so, you know, when high school was over and I was uh, kind of attempting college, if you will, talk about that a little bit more and trying to figure out whether I could both afford it, whether the family could afford to have me uh, just going to school and not kind of really making substantial income I had younger siblings uh, on their way uh, to college as well. Um, I, you know, decided because I had role models in my family that the military was a really good choice for me. Again, not necessarily for everyone, but for me it was the right choice at the right time to be able to make money, to learn, to grow, to build skills uh, across uh, technological and management fields, interpersonal spaces. And, uh, and I took it, I took the opportunity, I went I'm extraordinarily proud of uh, of my time in in the Marine Corps, in particular. I'm very much proud Marine, and uh, and my best friends are still folks that I served with, uh, both here in the states uh, in training and overseas. Um, You know, I had two deployments um, uh, in my early twenties while I was in the Marine Corps, and those were significant experiences as well they both highlighted for me the value of what you do when you when you serve but also I started to think about um, the needs as I started to get in my early to mid-20s of my immediate family and um, I've got a lot of uh, folks who I thought would depend on me as I got older uh, both for income and for support uh, kind of my physical presence and decided I needed to transition out of the service and um, you know I'd also been in for almost 10 years and felt like I was ready, and thought I knew what I needed to know about uh, transitioning out of the military, which is just that I needed to go. I trained, I had skills. I, you know, In the service, you go to so many different schools. Um, you do so many different workshops to learn everything by the numbers, if you will, so any kind of billet, any kind of job that you get, and I was actually in a technical field. I was a communication specialist uh, in the Marine Corps, so i had actually been to a year-long school, nine months, and then a few months after it, to learn my job and thought I know everything I need to know and I need to get out of I'm ready to get out of the service ready to get out of uniform and be home and I did not know everything I needed to know as I've said a few times and had to uh figure a lot out I really had to get my head screwed on straight um after I left the service going back to school to finish my degree which was really a prime primary focus uh, that I had and, and figure out what I was going to do, both with my military training, with a college degree, um, what, what kind of job was I going to find? And uh, just to kind of give a little context to how I find myself here, I gravitated after the service to um, direct service jobs, after the mil- after serving in the military, to work in direct service, working with people. And I found myself um, with some opportunities in the nonprofit sector and realized that I really thought that education, social services was a kind of a primary support um, for folks and felt like this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to impact. How I'm going to continue serving the public, continue serving my community. And I got bit, you know, kind of by the bug, so to speak, when I worked in that yeah. space. And, and I've been lucky to continue working in it, specializing in education, particularly for communities of color, I volunteered a lot and even started a small organization, a nonprofit with some friends that focused on um, mentoring young men of color. Um, and that uh, brings me to a great extent to, to where I am. I was really in a pool of individuals who had had uh, experience in the nonprofit sector. I'd been in a, a number of startups, a few startups in that space. So I had advocated, I'd learned the policy, I had worked in schools. And, uh, the firm was looking for individuals who had that experience. And so I, will just one last anecdote about it is that I, I saw the opportunity, someone presented it to me and said, you know, your, your, your profile is right for this. You should put in for it. And I thought I've never worked in corporate America. I've never worked in a corporate space. I have worked in the military, which means there's no bureaucracy too big for me at this point. I understand how those work, Um, And then uh, I I looked at the opportunity, I did some research on the firm, and it's actually their jobs program that to a great extent convinced me to go in and apply and go through the application process because they had then been engaged in the military jobs program, the 100,000 jobs program, which is now the million jobs program. And I, everything I read, everyone I spoke to said that this is very real. That they are engaged in the community, they are doing outreach, they are trying to reach veterans. And so I went in and I and I applied, and and I lucked out, and, and here I am now, five years plus.
0: Well, it's a, it's an amazing background, and um, you know, as you as you kind of described it when we were talking earlier, it was a it, you know you you described it as a winding pathway uh and in some ways it is right but there were there were real themes there i mean your you know your focus on service and and community and uh and that has been consistent throughout and uh and in many ways the role you're in now right even though you know as you mentioned you hadn't technically worked for a large corporation before the role you're in really requires an understanding of all those various parts of your background and i know we're going to we're going to talk about that right um because the philanthropy that J.P. Morgan Chase is supporting is really—I mean—it's significant. Um, it's it's both external-facing and has a lot of ties to what's happening inside the organization. Um, and so, you know, want to start talking a little bit about that. Give us uh, give us a sense of the you know the the major programs that that you're sponsoring now and supporting. And I know we're going to kind of talk about several of those in a little bit more detail. But I think giving everybody just a sense of the sense of the the major efforts that you have underway and the breadth of those efforts would be really helpful.
1: Yeah. So thank you for that. And, you know, we had a chance to touch a little bit on uh, something that is a little bit newer, but also I think uh, gives an example of the direction that the firm is headed in a program called Advancing Black Pathways, which is both an internal and external effort on behalf of JPMorgan Chase, where we are looking to promote internally people of color from entry-level positions to mid-management all the way to senior management and essentially create pipelines, promote pipelines, and build better kind of entry-level access points for people of color to the firm. We've been doing what I think over the last five to 10 years is a a good job. It's now become a yeoman's effort internally to where uh, one of the primary goals, which will soon be attached to Um, some really important assessments internally will show how we're doing and we're going to continue to promote that effort. Advancing Black Pathways also has an external component um, where we are doing community development work. We're partnering with nonprofits. We're doing a lot of work in terms of uh, addressing the racial wealth gap and looking into what the causes are and addressing those, not just through resourcing nonprofits who may work with families and and small business owners so that they're getting capital, they're getting training, but also looking at our own lending practices when it comes to uh, small business loans, when it comes to things like uh, home mortgages and figuring out what issues do we need to address? Where do we need to to make an adjustment? And and to put a finer point on it, making sure that there's a little bit more access for, for our customers and clients uh, another program, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is, is the work that we do around veterans. Uh, something that, that drew me to the firm, the 100,000 jobs, 1 million jobs, which will, which will very soon be the 10 million jobs program, uh, continues to advance. It's more than 10 years old. We have uh, 20 plus corporations directly engaged just in the Northeast alone. We uh, continue to, to, to work in that space and to promote internally Um, veterans, pulling them into the firm, pipelining them in. Uh, We do things uh, to the point where we have uh, specific efforts towards those who have college degrees, who've been potentially to service academies, those who do not, those who were enlisted in the service. We have internal mentoring programs uh, in in a lot of these spaces, including for veterans. And I'll throw in, there there are a lot of programs, just two more, our Tech for Social Good program, which I mentioned earlier, is an entire team working specifically uh, on STEM and and for those uh, positions inside of the firm for sourcing our our technical and programming uh, needs. So we have uh, a number of programs that represent internal and external efforts, as well as partnerships, um, uh, private and, and public partnerships where we can develop pipelines both into the firm, but also support the field as well. The the last one, uh, the fellowship initiative is one that I work on uh, very directly, and that is a college and career readiness program for young men of color. And that's demographically specific because of some of what uh, is lacking in terms of the graduation rates for young men of color from high school in this country. And then of course, how that ripples out towards college acquisition persistence or any sort of post-secondary acquisition and training um, if you're not getting that high school diploma. And uh, in all these cases, there's both the ability to lift up the field in the sector through sourcing people and nonprofits that are doing good work, but also looking at what we can do internally to draw people to the firm and provide them with opportunities at JP Morgan. So that's just a, a few of those.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a really incredible set of activities. Um, and I've been you know I've been familiar with some of them as I've kind of seen, you know, various bits and pieces and you know, probably updates I've seen you post on LinkedIn as well. But like I, I wasn't aware of all of that. And you know, that, that's probably you know the challenge, right? Is in thinking about where do we put our time and energy and resources, right? How many different things can we invest in? But like one of the themes that clearly there there's several themes that I wanted to talk about. You know, one is that I think traditionally people have this idea that corporate philanthropy was something where you know, a company did something, right? We were in banking or whatever the industry was. And then separately, we, you know, we do some good for an organization that you know, is a nonprofit and you know, they're not necessarily related to, to one or the other, right? And what you've described though, is that all these efforts are clearly geared towards very powerful social impact opportunity but one of the things that's become a major component of it is the, the the internal goals of a J.P. Morgan Chase trying to build a diversity talent pipeline, right? In terms of who it hires, and as you mentioned, all of these programs have opportunities for uh, for people to come come through these programs and potentially end up with an internship at J.P. Morgan Chase or a job at J.P. Morgan Chase. And so, it's interesting to think that there's a uh, an evolution in the corporate philanthropy and HR space where those things are like increasingly, you know, similar initiatives. I'm curious if you feel that that's the sense, right? And how much does your role in kind of a global philanthropy perspective actually interface with the HR leadership at, at the organization? Yeah,
1: that's a, that's a great question. And, and I do feel uh, that that's where the primary innovation is coming in that that's not a traditional conversation. That's not where uh, the HR function, a philanthropic function, a community development function, and certainly those folks who do that in a line of business in an organization the size of ours, you have functional teams working in, uh, in communities at a retail bank, uh, in asset and wealth management. But now the need for customers and clients to understand, you know, who are you as a corporate entity and what kind of work are you doing has really pushed us to get together and share information, share best practices, talk about um, how we're impacting the communities that we're in, not just in silos, but as a group. And what you see because of that, I think is a greater effort and a greater opportunity uh, for for an organization like ours to really be collaborative about the impact we have in a city, in a market, in some of our largest commercial uh, spaces to say, We are bringing philanthropic dollars. We are bringing uh, job opportunities. We are bringing the the leadership in terms of pipelining uh, individuals into spaces like ours or other businesses. Certainly from a philanthropic standpoint, we're just here to support the sector, not just ourselves. And also to to partner with uh, local municipalities, with uh, public leaders, with other private institutions that is, that is going to be, that is now and is the way that this is going to go, I think, for corporate social responsibility, not just at our organization, but at others. And I think we're really proud to play a leadership role in that. Um, communally, in terms of communication, we're just all aware of more, many of us. And that's going to breed kind of a lot more uh, discussion about what we need to be doing. Uh, to, to, to another of your points, that even internally, and it takes some effort. Uh, We each have our own distinct uh, responsibilities and accountabilities. And if I'm working on team X and I know that each quarter I need to hit a specific benchmark and team Y, that's not necessarily their goal. They have a different benchmark they need to have. We've had to get together and say, we're going to have to reevaluate how we're assessing our success on a quarter to quarter basis. How are we getting together? If innovation is going to become important, if collaboration is going to become important, we're going to have to measure how well we're doing that. To say how many dollars are really going into the community, how many jobs are really available there, and how much impact do we have on that? Not just from our own perspective, but how do we pull partners in? Um, that's kind of an overview, but I do feel that uh, very, very, uh, uh, this is the way this is going. I feel very much so that this is the way this is going uh, across the entire sector.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you're clearly in the middle of it and on the cutting edge of it. You know, one of the other themes that jumps out at me um, and, you know, it's probably obvious to those who've been listening, but I just kind of want to name it is how much it's what, what part of being successful in the work you're doing requires lots and lots of partnerships, right? Like you've just got this, it's a web of, you know, different nonprofit organizations and youth organizations and educational entities and, in some cases, other corporate partners, right? As part of an industry, not just a single business, right? And, but like, you know, on one hand, that's great, right? I'm really excited to hear about this, you know, web of, of, you know, kind of uh, support and coalition building. But on the other hand, you know, you step back and you go, wait a minute, you know, shouldn't our school, our K-12 and our higher ed system and our employers already have a really neat pathway, right? For people to, be, you know, developed in their talent, identified in their talent, and then ultimately placed into an opportunity where they can put that talent to work and earn, you know, a decent living to do it. I mean, the answer is that that system is not working in in very, you know, robust ways, at least not the way we intended. And what it ends up resulting in is, is the incredible complexity involved in, you know, all the partnerships that you are building to make these programs really work. So, I'm curious as you kind of segue to your thoughts about education, right? And our our talent development pipeline from say, either high school or from college into the workplace, what what can we be doing there to improve? I mean, outside of JP Morgan thinking, you might have examples that are specific things you've been involved in, but like, how do we improve that? Because if the answer is all this coalition building, company by company or industry by industry, that's a lot of work, right? So great that it's happening, but is that, you know, is that ultimately scalable too?
1: Yeah, um, I I do think that we need to make some adjustments, but I I believe that we're pushing in the right direction. Uh, To your point, and this is data that you're well familiar with, you know, the value, financial value of a high school diploma by itself has decreased uh, over the last 40 years in the the 13 to 14 percent range, something like that, while, very specific, people often say graduate degrees, the the value has increased, but it's really specific graduate degrees that have increased in terms of their their financial value to to those who who attain them. And that, you know, many of us believe, many people, many uh, uh, folks who've been studying this believe that that is directly correlated, that decrease in the value of high school diploma, at least to some degree, to the loss of manufacturing jobs and and so other impacts in terms of the, the general, uh, kind of work environment and the employment opportunities. And I think that's where we can start to look at the gap. Um, and meaning that if the available jobs, if the necessary skill sets for those jobs have changed, and we know, I mean, it's very difficult, you know, if you start to look at kind of the, the value of, of the way the educational system was set up in this country, what it was set up for, the transitions, there are a whole host of movies there are, there's data galore. We have a sense of, of how that was set up, and what the foundation was, but do we know if we've made the adjustment, and people talk about adjusting the platform, but have we made the adjustment to the available jobs? There are a lot of nonprofits working on that. There are a lot of organizations building collaboratives, employment collaboratives, but the, the progress is incremental, to your point, and we're building very massive, intricate, complex Um, kind of systems to address smaller groups of individuals to try to say, can we take this control of 200? Can we address a thousand and see if we can move them and give them the skills they need to make this transition and build a better pathway? But I think that what we're looking at is policy, really is a policy issue. And, And I think that oftentimes it's difficult to address it because it's structural. I personally believe that education looks a lot like infrastructure to most people. When you say, when I say infrastructure, I mean people who feel like we need to address our highways, people who feel like we need to address crumbling school buildings, people who feel like we need to address uh, systems, bureaucratic systems that maybe need to be updated, you know, uh, into the digital era. That is overwhelming, you know, it is just, it, it feels like we have to change the whole world to address that. And I think that addressing education in a larger policy framework really falls into that bucket, that people look at it and think, well, it works well enough for my, for, pe- for kids to go to school, they learn to read and write, um, we at least have some sense of whether they know math, but really that doesn't address, are they prepared for, you know, and, and again, this is something you can, you can hear in a lot of places, for the job market as it stands But I I believe the disconnect is on is in in terms of making those policy adjustments that will make massive or drastic changes over time. You can't do it in a year, you can't even do it in two years. But much like climate change, you've got to start setting 10 year, 15, and potentially 20-year benchmarks to make massive adjustments in, in the way we're preparing students. And what's funny is I think you're alluding to the fact that as we build intricate Kind of systems to make adjust to make it to address uh, changes maybe in smaller demographics and specific communities. In some cases, we find best practices, and in some cases, we actually complicate the conversation um, by saying, "Well, could we scale this?" Even though we haven't thought about whether it's built to be scaled across multiple states, multiple cities, different types of communities. Right. Um, education is very much a local question uh, with regard to well, how do we address this community and what are this community's needs. And, uh, and that's why I think it's, it's really a policy question to say, how do you give the tools to those folks leading the effort, whether it be the local school district, um, the institutions that train teachers uh, or families and say, well, this is what the job market is. How do we reverse engineer whether we're going to be prepared for this or not?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many pieces in there to to talk about, Uh, you know, and I like your point about, you know, we need to think about long-term benchmarks, right? Because these are not easy issues to solve. Progress is not, uh, despite, you know, our, our best wishes, it's probably not gonna happen overnight in really substantial ways, right? But, but we can chip away at it, right? And over years, you know, you do get to a place where it could be substantially improved. What's in, I've always been interested in this, um, you know, one of the biggest complaints, you know, maybe right alongside the, the cost of higher education, um, is the, the belief among almost everybody that you survey uh, that college graduates, and by the way, the same is said about high school graduates, so it doesn't matter which level you ask about, whether you ask about the work readiness of high school graduates or college graduates, most of us are very negative about the work readiness of graduates, either from our K-12 system or from our higher ed system. And you might say, well, geez, Brandon, you're going to put that on par with the rising cost of college as one of the biggest problems. Absolutely. The reason is because, you know, the the, the top reason that Americans value higher education is to get a good or better job, right? And if we have very little confidence that graduates are being well prepared for that, well, then, you know, that calls into question the return on investment for this whole thing. And But here's the interesting point, right? In in a lot of that, you you start to dig underneath the surface and you say to employers, uh, and these are through qualitative interviews and surveys, okay, what is it about these graduates that makes you feel like they're not ready for work? And there's a mixed bag of things in there, right? Like they don't actually have the skills needed for the job. So that's a misalignment of what they were taught or trained to do or a signaling problem from employers, right? So there's that. But the most fundamental thing is they say, they've never had any work experience, right? Like no evidence of an internship, a co-op, whatever form you want to, you know, an you know, apprenticeship, a shadowing, an externship. There's a lot of different derivatives of, of work integrated learning, um, but that's what employers want most. And so the, the irony though is that employers complain about it and then you say, okay, well, what's the fix for that? Well, it's more internships and, you know, a, a bigger initiative to offer more of those opportunities for younger Americans. And and especially because we know there's a big equity uh, gap related to that for Americans from underserved communities because they have less social capital and access to opportunities. They might not be able to take an unpaid internship because they can't afford to do it, right? So, So I always find it to be ironic that the biggest complaint from employers about higher ed is something that they can play a bigger role in solving, which is to think about how do we encourage employers to expand dramatically on the internship and other work opportunities that younger people might have. I know you guys are doing a lot of work on that, but if you just take your your JP Morgan hat off and say, what do we need to do at a national level to motivate employers to be more involved in this, to make a bigger commitment, like, do you think there's a federal policy lever that can be pulled to do that? I mean, what would what would motivate businesses across the country to significantly up their game when it comes to work integrated learning opportunities for uh, for young people or even for folks who are, uh, you know, say mid-career who are thinking about a total career change? You know, I, I, I joke often about the movie The Internship, uh, you know, it's a comedy, but you know, these 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 guys are making a career shift and they're, you know, they're older. They're, they're not, you know, young 18 to 22-year-old college students. Why shouldn't we have internships for people who are making career changes too? There just aren't enough of them. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about what we can do there at a national level.
1: Yeah, so I appreciate that question because I do think, um, you know, along with many others, this is the sort of conversation that we need to be having in order to move this forward. But I don't know that there is a, a specific federal policy. I think what what we can do at the federal level level is what we have attempted to do, which is incentivize movement at the state level, particularly around education. It is a state level issue. To really have impact, you have to figure out how to motivate um, state level leaders, um, from governors on down, to say this has got to be a primary part of my platform. I also think that. Um, we have done a lot of really great innovation at J.P. Morgan, and you see it at other organizations too. We have partner organizations in the corporate space um, who are figuring out how to build strong uh, longitudinal relationships with nonprofits that start to look like this is, this is the future of a potential pipeline. You start to look at a relationship that says, well, what if we did scale this in the city? What if we did scale this in the community? And looking at it from a state perspective, What if we were starting to survey those relationships at the state level? What if at the state level we said, who are some of our largest employers? Who are they um, creating these partnerships with? Which of these collaborations is maybe more complex than it needs to be? Which of them is just right? And how do we start to look at scaling that and and incentivizing organizations? I really think what we need to do is think about not how to create a law that that insists or enforces, but how to create incentives only because I think that's a faster route um, to making sure that everyone says, okay, there's something in this for me, I'll jump on board and I'll move forward. I do. I said earlier that I think policy is important. I think incentivizing it through policy is critical. Uh, I think once we arrive at a place where we have larger scale agreement, I, I can't help but think about how polarized we are. And a lot of what you and I are talking about falls into some of the polarization. Once the conversation starts, well, who's gonna tell me you know, exactly what goes into the curriculum. Uh, right. A 12, uh, 12 level, who's going to tell me the value of college or whether I have to get a college degree or whether I need to have a certain type of job or work in a certain type of industry. We need to probably stay away from that, but say, how do we incentivize the partnerships that are working and, and create uh, kind of motivation? And I also think sometimes we miss the, the, the potential win in prestige. Uh, sometimes we forget, we a lot of people out here, we like to feel like we're doing something that's successful and that we're winning in, in terms of our goals and that there's actually a lot to be had, not just with the dollar incentive or with the kind of credit incentive, if you will, towards um, towards an organization, but also prestige. You know, states being able to say, you know, here's what we're working on, here's what's working, here are the companies that we're working with that have created this really successful model. And now the next stage is to figure out. Not how we scale it nationally, I don't, I don't, you know, having been in the education reform and advocacy space for a while, everyone is so concerned about going coast to coast. When you really need to be concerned with the state that you're in and figuring out how does this work for this state. And then having conversations with folks in the in another state about what works for you and, and what their situation is so I think that you can do that on a on a, a private to public level state to state as well, looking at the major employers. Yep. Those who influence the workforce and and the available jobs in that space, because then they can pull in other large or slightly smaller mid level employers as well, and say, hey, I think this is something that we can work on, and we can improve the circumstances in this in this state in this city. So I really think it starts at the state level, but at the federal level, you can you can create incentives that uh, that drive that progress.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to think that we start to spend more time at a at a national and state and local level talking about education, talking about workforce development, talking about labor market policies. You know, I think they're fu- they're fundamental to some of the challenges that the country's facing. But, you know, we just really haven't had uh, a, a dialogue around those things uh, compared to a lot of the other issues that we're grappling with. And, you um, and I think you know, the, the lead is going to come from innovative public-private partnerships, as you pointed out. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that we're not going to solve this problem just from a federal level or just from a state level. We're not going to solve it from just a corporate America perspective, right, or, or, or from uh, you know, the, the public sector in terms of nonprofit organizations. It's going to be a blend of all of those. And I would love to get to a place someday because in a lot of ways this is happening. Where you know you, you kind of can't tell the difference between a company, a nonprofit, or a government entity because they're involved in work of self-sustainable revenue in some form, right? They're involved in uh, social uh, good in terms of the activities they're supporting, and they're all working with one another in some form where they you know they have they have codependencies and in very positive ways. So. I applaud the work you're doing. I applaud the thinking you're doing. I think you're an incredible role to influence a lot of this, obviously not just for JP Morgan, but more broadly. So thank you again, Fernando, for joining the show. Uh, For those who are interested next week, I'm gonna have Ann Kirshner, who's an education visionary, faculty member, an investor in education technology company. She has a fascinating background. We're gonna be talking about the horizon uh, of education looking a few years out. So uh, Fernando, thank you again best of luck with all the work you're doing. And uh, I'll look forward to following all the updates and the impact that you're making.
1: Thanks, Brandon. I really appreciate it.